If plan A fails and we can't make tools that are convenient but also freedom-oriented, then freedom degrades to a point where people get burned so much that they finally wake up to it and start trying to improve their own situation. Hello there from Argentina. I hope you're doing all right. I'm down here making a film. It's amazing down here. Argentina, what an incredible country. What incredible people. When the film comes out, I'll tell you about all the amazing people who've helped us put this together. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the legends at Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Preston Pish and Matt O'Dell on the show, and this one was taken from our live recording we did at WBD Live in Nashville. Now, we get into a bunch of stuff in this episode, but mainly we start talking about the BlackRock ETF, the pros and cons of their application, and we also get into the US debt spiral and inflation. So I hope you enjoy this. I know you're going to have questions. So if you want to hit me up, it is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Right. Welcome to What Bitcoin Did Live. Me, Peter, and Danny, and my good friend, Matt. So yesterday, I was hanging out with Matt, and Matt Blue Check shamed me. <laughs> so to was it today I did it? No, yesterday I got rid of my blue check. Do we know, should we talk about that? Allegedly. Well, I can prove it. How can you prove it? I assume if I go in there. Like, if you look on Twitter, you got a blue check. I know, because I think they keep it Once to the you end check, of the month you can you never go for. back. Blue check, look, here we go. I thought we were going to talk about Bitcoin today. Uh, we talked look, about the blue check has, yesterday. And Nostr. Who's on Nostr here? Raise your hand. Look at that. Nostr is the future. Who's not on Nostr? Shamed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Matt shamed me into uh, getting rid of my blue check. Hands up if you've got a blue check. Boo. Look at that pride. F- fucking degenerates. Right. That leads us to our topic. Anything that can be captured will be captured. And uh, so, Matt, we want to talk to you about that. Because this world we live in uh, has always really been about money up until... I would say about a year ago, we started expanding outside of money and started thinking a lot more about uh, things like communications, uh, especially with how communications have been captured by the state, quite obviously. Communications companies have been captured by the state. So do you feel like this Bitcoin movement is now much bigger than just a financial movement? Well, I mean, I think that Bitcoin is part of a larger freedom tech movement. Um, specifically this idea of free and open source software. So this idea of code that is not owned by an individual or a company um, that can outlive its creator, right? The code that anyone can uh, modify, they can distribute, they can iterate on top of, they can build on top of, um, and they can improve on without permission. Now this, this, to me, I actually, when I came into Bitcoin, it was, it was part of my Bitcoin experience, part of the paradigm shift. And, and I will say specifically to me was Snowden in 2013. When Snowden came out in 2013 and he said, essentially, here are the leaked documents that show that every major tech company has either colluded willingly or unwillingly with the U.S. government to spy on both our citizens and every single person in the world. Um, that was a... Just it, it changed it changed how my brain was wired. It changed how I thought about things. And you basically could not trust any centralized company, period. 
Um, I think that is going to become more apparent to people over time. Um, and the unfortunate reality is that we've just never been in this situation before. We've never been in a situation where an increasingly large part of our, our lives is lived in the digital realm and is controlled by very few gatekeepers that have an insane amount of, of control over, over what we do, what we say, how we interact with the world. And I think what happens is basically is we're going to see increasingly worse uh, situations where that centralized control is, is used against us, whether that's intentionally through uh, collusion with governments or direct action by these companies, or if it's through larger and larger leaks, right? And I think um, we saw in America, we saw the, uh, like the TransUnion Equifax, Equifax leak, which was like four years ago. I think people have already kind of forgotten about it, but they essentially doxed every single adult American all at once through a system that we can't even opt into. Like you're automatically part of this credit reporting regime um, and I, I think we start to see things along those lines where people get increasingly burned. We, well, obviously, we've seen PayPal censorship. We've seen social media censorship. But these things get worse and worse. And then people understand, they start to realize the need to seek out these tools. They seek out tools that, that empower them and empower, empower how they interact with everything in their daily lives. Um, and, and the key for us, the key for people that realize this today is to help build those tools, support those tools, use those tools, and the education alongside it, because when they realize the need, they're gonna be coming, looking, looking for something that solves their problem. What is it you ultimately fear, Matt? What do I ultimately fear? Yeah. Um, I think, I, I think you could distill it from, it's, it's a lack of freedom. I, I think it's a lack of freedom, and I think, um, I, I think what, what I fear is, is this ever-increasing lack of freedom leading to a dystopian type of situation, a very dark situation. And I think maybe, uh, I think anyone who has a family, who has kids, who is thinking about future generations, you start to, it starts to run in your head. Even if you're not thinking about these specifics, you know, you start to think about, oh, maybe um, how, do, how do I deal with screen time with my children? How do I deal with social media? I mean, even if you go back, I'm, I'm decently young. I think I'm, I'm like old person in Bitcoin. Um, but when, when I was growing up, I made a lot of mistakes. And those weren't recorded forever for everybody. And I don't think we fully have appreciated the repercussions of that kind of situation because we've never been in that situation before. And humans just, it's hard for us to extrapolate different causes, causes and effects like down the line, right? I mean, I have. What, what, what have you? Appreciated that things are recorded yeah, forever. I, yeah, you've, you've drank from the fire hose in that regard. But like, who, who, we, we, we can't really... There's an unknown there, right? There's an unknown there, and I don't think people truly appreciate that unknown. They just kind of, we live our lives where we think on a daily basis, like, oh, that's the way it's always been. So of course it'll work. But it, it, that's not the way it's always been. This is all new, and we're gonna see these repercussions, and, and let's try and build a better world before we really feel the true pain of the world that, 
has already been created. And there's a spectrum of how much people care about this stuff. Uh, you're kind of like my uh, flag for the worst case scenarios. Well, I look to you for uh, your opinions and your thoughts on any uh, specific events that happen. Um, uh, and I fear some of the things you do, but I'm, I'm not in the same camp as you are. Yet, when I go back home, I don't know. Who here is the weirdo amongst their friends when they get out, of, they go back home? Yeah, so we're all the weirdos, right? Um, and we all sit here thinking, this is bullshit, what's happening with the financial assistance, bullshit, what's happening with our communications are bullshit. I don't know about anyone here, I go home and go for a drink with my friends and I, I try and softly dance around some of these topics and they think I'm fucking crazy. And so I'm finding it very difficult to communicate the risks that we talk about on my podcast, your podcast, these events, why do you think that is? Uh, so first of all, um, Peter didn't make this clear in the beginning, um, but we are, me, Peter, and Danny are doing 30 minutes right now, and then they are gonna do 30 minutes with Preston Pish. We're very grateful to have Preston Pish in the house, also a member of Bitcoin Park. Uh, and then we are gonna be doing, uh, all four of us will be up here for a joint Q&A. So if you have questions, think of the questions, get them ready. Um, but if you have a super pressing question that has to be asked immediately, put your hand up, we might consider it. Okay. Um, I, uh, look, I, there's no, it, it, it's hard, it's hard. And I, I, think, I think what's really, what I always, uh, go back to as a metaphor. Who, raise your hand if you use Signal. Okay, so I really like Signal, uh, the messaging app, the encrypted messaging app. And what, what is really novel about Signal is like, if you talk to privacy advocates, there's a bunch of different issues and different trade-offs that Signal made. But what, what Signal did was they made a very convenient app that's really good at sharing multimedia. You can share photos, you can share videos, you can do little emoji likes, you can share GIFs, you can create group chats. It's just a really good messenger. But it happens to have pretty strong privacy guarantees, right? And for most people, what they want in their daily lives is they just want something that's convenient and easy to use, right? And, and, and there is a, there's a trade-off balance there that they found where you can provide something that's just a better tool regardless of privacy, but also gives you significantly better privacy and freedom. And what I'd like to see is, and, and you know, a lot of my work is focused on, on, on working with builders and supporting builders, whether that's on OpenSats for open source contributors or 1031 for founders that are building startups, is I wanna see more tools that make, make best practices, make freedom best practices uh, as convenient as possible with, with defaults set in that kind of vein, right? Where, where, where the, the creators are, are making certain trade-off decisions for their users, because most people will not go out of their way to seek a more private or freedom-oriented thing. Now that's in a world where we live with relatively good freedom guarantees, like America. In America, we can all complain about a bunch of different things, but if you compare us to the rest of the world, uh, we live with, relatively good freedom guarantees, um, and we, we live with that privilege. And as a result, we don't necessarily seek out alternatives. 
Now, in places like Argentina or Venezuela or Iran, like these people already realize the need for freedom-oriented tools. You don't have to convince them why they need a better tool. You just need to talk to them about the tools existing and them being able to seek them out. So my doomer optimism kind of comes from the fact that if plan A fails and we can't make tools that are convenient but also freedom-oriented, then freedom degrades to a point where people get burned so much that they finally wake up to it and start trying to improve their own situation. And there's a little bit of frustration in the middle ground where you just can't get through to everyone. Most people will not learn until they touch the stove. Um, and there's a, there's a reason why you know, that exists as a phrase, because most kids don't realize the stove's hot until they touch it, and then they don't touch it again. And that brings me back to something I mentioned to you yesterday, where I said, um, you know, if we get a situation where the financial system collapses, most people in this room assume or hope they will be at least be a bit protected because they have Bitcoin, right? And if anybody, you know, someone like Preston or yourself or I or has a platform and they get removed from that platform because, you know, we call Elon a dick and we have Nostra to communicate. Like we we are, have access to these communications. We're aware of these, but that's an individual uh, ability to protect yourself. That's an individual insurance. But if you talk about heading towards a dark place, then we have a collective responsibility to try and fight back. So how do you think we get Freedom Tech on the agenda with the larger companies who own these platforms? Because it never feels like the smaller platforms will ever get the real penetration. Well, I mean, I don't think you can reason with, you know, the oligarchs of our time. Uh, they're gonna want as much data and control as possible. Um, I think that's just how it is. I think, I think it's a false premise that these tools are based on the need for collective action. I think the, the, the empowering part, the, the most actionable part of these tools is that at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual. It comes down to the individual exercising their right, their natural human right, not a right that's given to them by governments, a right that they take themselves and defend themselves to improve their own situation. But at scale, it does help everybody but it's not relying on the idea that everyone is going to collectively come together and improve the collective situation. It just will not happen that way. And I mean, if you believe it can happen that way, then maybe you know, be more focused on politics or lobbying or asking, sending comment cards to companies. I just do not think that's how you actually get actionable change. I think you get actionable change by empowering individuals from a grassroots focus it's one of the reasons that Bitcoin Park exists, to focus on grassroots freedom tech adoption. From a grassroots perspective, you start there, and then as you empower individuals, the centralized actors that control a lot of our daily lives, they get disempowered. They lose power because the individuals have more power. Okay, so you've talked about ease of use. Some of these tools being easier to use, something like Signal. Uh, BlackRock is gonna make buying Bitcoin easier to buy for a lot of people. Uh, our good friend Harry at the back there would say everything is good for Bitcoin. Uh, is a BlackRock ETF good for Bitcoin? Well, BlackRock's not gonna make it easy to buy Bitcoin. BlackRock's gonna make it easy to buy IOUs. 
Uh, you know what is, I mean. It is rug pull technology. There's a big dis- distinction. Yeah, yeah but you, you know uh, what I mean. I uh, Someone's buying the Bitcoin. I mean, BlockFi made it really easy to buy Bitcoin too, right? Um, I think... <laughs> there are so many things Matt, I could say about Matt. And every time he pulls this on me, I... I I, I will just say that this year, I think, has proven to a lot of people, especially newcomers, the risks of trusting a centralized third party. BlackRock is obviously a centralized third party in ETF. Um, that, all that said, BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. Uh, they have been historically very critical of Bitcoin. Uh, they are the largest shareholder in the majority of companies that exist on this planet, uh, and where they're not, Vanguard is, and they're the largest shareholder in Vanguard. Um, corruption runs our entire world. I expect a BlackRock ETF to get approved. The question is timeline. Uh, if there's going to be a Bitcoin ETF, it's going to be a BlackRock ETF approval. Um, that is a signaling mechanism to a lot of institutions and suits and rich family offices that have been sitting on the sidelines not considering Bitcoin as a real asset, that Bitcoin is here to stay and that it's a real asset worth paying attention to. If BlackRock wants to get a piece of it, it's a real, it's a real thing. And I think most people probably are not appreciating the paradigm shift that happened just by them applying for an ETF. Not even getting approved, just the signaling mechanism BlackRock is going for this has completely changed the ball game in terms of Bitcoin demand. And I think the, the, the main theses I have about Bitcoin is, from a value accrual perspective, is, is that as adoption increases, purchasing power should increase because it's a very scarce asset. So I expect BlackRock to essentially supercharge Bitcoin adoption, but I do need to reiterate whenever BlackRock comes up that first of all, they can go fuck themselves. And second of all, there's going to probably be a lot of people that buy BlackRock's ETF and get burned and learn the risks of, of trusting a custodian. And, and, and people should learn how to hold Bitcoin themselves, how to use Bitcoin themselves, how to use it in a freedom-oriented way. And yes, it can be daunting and overwhelming, but it's easier than it's ever been. And there's many aspects of our lives that we take immense personal responsibility and do because we need to do it. Things like driving a car, things like having a kid. Having a kid is extreme personal responsibility. Every mother can self-custody Bitcoin. If they can have a child and raise a child, they can self-custody Bitcoin. It is not as difficult as people make it out to be. And you need to sit down with the tools and spend a little time on it. If, if, if the question is, does my family, is my family able to accrue and hold purchasing power over time and have some security on a financial side? Maybe spend a couple hours on a weekend and, and focus on it. And I'm not trying to degrade people who have had difficulty with it. I know it can be difficult. It's hard to think about. It's, it's, it's daunting. It's overwhelming. But we spend a lot, of times on a, a lot of time on a lot of trivial bullshit. And, you know, the time, the time is now, the time was yesterday, but if not yesterday, today, to get your shit in order and figure it out. Don't just pull the easy route and buy the BlackRock ETF and then start complaining about it in you know, however many years when they rug you. I, th- I think there's a few things, though. First of all, no one starts Bitcoin by self-custodying Bitcoin 
like I think probably everyone in this room bought Bitcoin through Coinbase or through some other exchange and left on that exchange for a while. And BlackRock ETF could be the next way of like onboarding new Bitcoiners. And you said that people are going to get rugged through the BlackRock ETF, which might be true, but I think it's very important to specifically say how they can get rugged. I think, I think first of all, even without a rug, like a full-on rug where they play paper Bitcoin games, part of my conviction on Bitcoin is that anyone who plays paper Bitcoin games will get wrecked eventually because the supply will just dwindle and dwindle with people taking self-custody and using a circular economy that ultimately they'll get blown out and uh, the price will then essentially normalize on spot Bitcoin um, and they will get wrecked. Um, so even if BlackRock doesn't play paper Bitcoin games, it's important to understand what are you buying when you buy a BlackRock ETF. And you're buying price exposure to this incredibly scarce asset. You're not buying the censorship resistant properties of Bitcoin. You're, not, you're definitely not buying uh, uh, the digital cash perspective of Bitcoin, right? Being able to pay anyone without permission or receive money without permission. You're not getting either of those benefits. And I think there is a concern that if people buy the BlackRock ETF, they feel comfortable and safe that they have some price exposure to Bitcoin, and then that journey kind of stops there unless they get burned, right? And I don't know if it's necessarily a on-ramp into sovereign Bitcoin, and I think there's almost a delineation that is gonna be made, and has already kind of started maybe four years ago, where you have freedom Bitcoin and then you have investment Bitcoin. Fiat right? Bitcoin. And I think the real powerful tool that empowers individuals is the freedom Bitcoin. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not necessary. Like obviously, good money, you should be able to save it without permission. It should, it should increase in purchasing power over time and hold your wealth. Um, but you should also be able to spend and, save, spend and receive it without permission. And I think that's where the real power lies. And, and the BlackRock ETF kind of for a lot of people will kind of delay that entry point into it. And I, I don't think we should, I, I don't think we should settle with this idea that people don't come in with self-custody. That wasn't always the case. In the earlier days of Bitcoin, that was not the case. Um, and I don't understand why we should necessarily settle with that now when the tools have gotten significantly better. Is that because in the earlier days, it all started with self-custody? You had to. There just wasn't really many, it was, everything was very difficult. I think it's fine to say that. And I agree. Like, it would be great if everyone onboarded through Unchained or something like that, where they're buying Bitcoin through in a multi-sig, directly to their multi-sig. But that's just not the case. And so are we not better getting people on board than leaving people behind? And you say that it might put people sort of down the track on uh, self-custodying their own Bitcoin. But is it going to bring them in earlier anyway? I just don't think that's like, they're not... They're, they have a Bitcoin IOU price exposure. Like they're not on Bitcoin. Yeah, I don't um, think they know what they're buying. I, I think I think there might even be an argument, and you know, fuck Coinbase, not your keys, not your coins. Like there might be an argument that like if you buy Bitcoin on Coinbase and you're holding it custodial in their vault product or whatever, at least at that point, like at any moment, you can press withdraw and withdraw the Bitcoin. With with the BlackRock ETF, it's you you know there's a whole nother step. Like I don't even know like what is what is that process to the average person? Are they selling their BlackRock ETF, then paying the man their cap gains, and then buying, then registering on a KYC service or or going to a circular economy and trying to accrue Bitcoin? 
I, I like what it what is that process in your head where like that makes that process easier? I don't think the BlackRock ETF actually does that. Um, I think them signaling and launching an ETF and bringing all this money into the market will increase the price, which would then increase adoption across all these other verticals of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So it would supercharge it in that way. But to the actual person who's buying the BlackRock ETF, to the actual person in family office deploys $10 million into the BlackRock ETF, are they any closer to self-custody Bitcoin than when they deployed it into the gold ETF? I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Like, I don't, I don't, that doesn't compute in my head. Do, do you think those people even care, though, really? What do you mean? Well, they just have a portfolio of things they buy because they're told to buy it. Oh, Larry Fink says we should buy this, let's buy it. I think, I think rich, rich people, uh, very wealthy people, spend a lot of their time focused on preserving their wealth. And there's a reason the Swiss banking system is, is so robust and, and, and so heavily used, right? Like, there's, we saw the Panama Papers, like, rich people will go through a lot more trouble than self-custody Bitcoin to protect their wealth. Uh, and I think they're not idiots. I think they know the BlackRock ETF wouldn't do that for them. So, so we may have a, what you're basically saying is we may have a bunch of family offices, uh, rich people, institutions who will lead a, uh, a very large scale marketing campaign via BlackRock to advertise Bitcoin to a bunch of normies who we can introduce through better channels. Yeah, pretty much. That's pretty cool. And also, I just think they're going to pump our bags. <laughs> the vast majority of people are happy as numbers go up. That's yeah. uh, that half an hour went really quick. Uh, we will have Matt back in a minute. Uh, I want to ask one more question before we okay. start. Stop. The, the better um, questions come from Danny. I want to know what you think about the threat of BlackRock pushing campaigns like tainted Bitcoin, dark Bitcoin, whatever that might be, and whether you think that's going to be a real threat? I mean, I think they probably will. Um, I think that's part of this idea of the delineation between freedom Bitcoin and investment Bitcoin. I think there's a large group of Bitcoiners that actually uh, would welcome greater regulation on sovereign Bitcoin, and they would, uh, the word they're going to use on Twitter and whatnot is going to be regulatory clarity. Like this has opened the floodgates. We got regulatory clarity. But really, it's about stomping on individual rights is, is really the play. Um, I think BlackRock will obviously do that. I think BlackRock will probably see them say, you know, if you want to invest in Bitcoin in a safe way, you should buy the BlackRock ETF, which is I'm kind of getting ready for that by shitting on them as much as possible. Um, I think uh, there's, there's really... Those, that's one of three main risks that you could watch with the BlackRock ETF. You have that. Um, them just essentially campaigning against freedom-oriented Bitcoin usage. And that's not necessarily using privacy best practices. That might be self-custody altogether. Yeah. Um, it would be great for BlackRock if it was really hard to withdraw from exchanges and hold Bitcoin yourself. Because then you have no other option. Of course you're going to use them. Of course you're going to... They're so trusted. I, I saw Larry Fink on TV. He called BlackRock Hope. Um, who the fuck does he think he's kidding? He's probably kidding a couple of people, but they're gonna. They're, I could totally see them petitioning for that, and you should operate under that assumption. That's going to be harder to buy Bitcoin from regulated services. That's one of the reasons why the circular economy is so important. It's a major focus we have here at Bitcoin Park. The other two main risks, and I'll just try and go through them really quickly, is paper Bitcoin. We've already kind of covered that. I think if they if they do try and play paper Bitcoin games and don't have the collateral they say they have. They will get wrecked, and they're they're 
their, their users, their clients that are holding BlackRock ETF shares will also get wrecked alongside that. And there'll be many institutions and there'll be a mass, if that happens, there'd be a massive lesson in, in, in using self-custody. That's how people learn, touching the stove. And then the third big risk is maybe they campaign for a fork. What a lot of people I think got wrong out of 2017 is that anyone can fork Bitcoin if they want to. You don't need permission. You can just fork it. When we see Ripple fund the terrorist organization that is Greenpeace, $5 million, and campaign to hashtag change the code, they can change the code today if they want to. They could change it yesterday, they can change it next week, they can change the code whenever they want. Now, Bitcoin is extremely resistant to change by design, and essentially what you would need for that kind of hard fork to materialize and have actual legs and, and continue is a overwhelming majority of stakeholder support of Bitcoin, Bitcoin users, Bitcoin companies, anyone who relies on Bitcoin would need to support any kind of change. And that's where the key value of Bitcoin lies because people will not support change that is against them, that hurts them. Um, and so this default of no change stops malicious changes from happening. But it's important to realize that anyone can fork. So I would not rule out there's a much larger than zero possibility. We see a BlackRock uh, proof of stake fork. Oh, it's good for the environment. Uh, Bitcoin miners hate the environment. Bitcoin miners love the environment, but that's what they would say. Um, I think that would also, I think that would fail. And I think that would be a massive lesson akin to what some of us saw in 2017, but on a much larger scale for all the newcomers that weren't around for 2017, that Bitcoin cannot be controlled by BlackRock, that BlackRock can't stop us from using Bitcoin, that we can't stop, use, stop BlackRock from using Bitcoin, and that's the fucking value of Bitcoin in the first place, is that it's money without trust, it's money without permission. All right. Yep. I don't you know. Know. All right, Preston. Hot seat. How you doing, man? Doing great. Preston Pish. Yeah. What do you think of BlackRock? Well, it's, it's interesting because I agree with Matt. I think people might look at my background and covering traditional finance and think that I would probably be more in the camp of, oh, it's not really all that bad. You know, people are gonna put this in their portfolio and it's good for Bitcoin and all that. But I agree with everything you were saying. And uh, just to kind of like foot stomp the, the point of like how, they, how it could get away from them is when you look at how a lot of these, these big entities handle just stock certificates, so many of them are rehypothecated to, to make money at either at the exchange level or, or wherever. And um, it's way more prevalent, especially BlackRock uh, equity and the, the equity that they control inside of their, their uh, entity. And when you look at how prevalent that practice is and how that's just part of Wall Street, um, it's very concerning to think that, that some of those antics could potentially be happening in the background. Now, there's certain regulations that they have to abide by when you're dealing with an ETF as to this one. I, I, I can't speak to the nuances of how this is actually gonna be set up. It's not even approved yet, so we don't, we don't even know how it's actually gonna be set up. Um, I do know that there's two different types of ETFs. One is effectively hard line that it's, it's a one-to-one -one match for the share issuance. The other type of ETF is a little bit smushier in, the, in what they're able to actually 
custody versus the amount of shares and the representation that the shares are, are representing for the underlying. So I don't know uh, of those two um, what it's going to be. I would imagine it's going to be the first, but I, I really don't know. But to Matt's point, you have no idea how they're going to be treating the rehypothecation of it. And in this, in this new world that we're moving to, you're going from the legacy system, which is all about like, hey, I control the ledger, I control the rehypothecation, I control this, and if I blow up, if I'm a Silicon Valley bank situation, well then my political, the reason I make all these political contributions and the reason I'm so active on the Hill is to get myself out of that situation and just debase the currency, everybody pays the price, and you know, then you know, Bill Ackman's there, you know, tweeting about how they have to bail it out or it's it's chaos in the streets. So my concern is you're going from that mindset of this is how the world works to a mindset of, of what we all understand and know to be true because we've seen it time and time again through the years that it's ultimate responsibility. Nobody's going to bail you out no matter what. You have to bear the consequence. And if Bitcoin collapses by 50% on the day, because whatever blew up uh, and people need to, they have counterparties that they got to come up with and that's why they're sellers. Um, that world, I don't know that Wall Street's ready for that world. I think they're so cognitively conditioned that the world that they operate in is like political favor will get me out of whatever, um, that it's going to be a real shell shock and it only becomes more true as the market cap runs. So you start getting to a price of 500,000 or a million on Bitcoin and you're looking at the sheer size of this thing. And then you look at what I would expect is the amount of people using a BlackRock vehicle, which is going to be a lot. I think it's going to be a massive, not just BlackRock, but all of these ETFs that are going to get approved. They're going to be huge. And so as that market cap blows out and all of that Bitcoin's being shoved into a trust at Coinbase or wherever, that consolidation is a risk to all those people that are entrusting these institutions. Huge risk. And then if they're playing traditional games with that, it only, uh, you know, they, they say the, the bigger the giant, the harder the fall. That scenario is through and through with, with these institutions. So... Do I think that you're going to see uh, people that are going to learn that lesson the hard way, just like everybody learned the lesson with FTX and you name it exchange uh, over the past decade? Do I think that that will continue to play out? I think there's a pretty high chance that that will continue. Now, whether it's BlackRock or whatever one of them, I don't know. But um, boy, you're moving to a world of ultimate responsibility. And I don't think there's many participants in society that are ready for that world right now. So Bitcoin's gonna blow up BlackRock? I think it has, it could blow it up. I, I think, honestly, I think, uh, I would like to think that that um, there's people smart enough to understand that, that it has that potential to do that, right? But who knows? I mean, it, it comes down to sometimes you have people with massive egos that are sitting in, very influential and controlling positions in some of these really large institutions. And if that person and their team that's underneath of them don't have a deep appreciation for that possibility because this thing is that immutable, then yeah, it could. Uh, you said with your podcast with um, kind of one foot in the traditional world and one foot in the Bitcoin world. And uh, I think your podcast has done a brilliant job of orange pilling people from the traditional world. 
how big a deal is something like BlackRock to those people in the traditional world? Who oh, I think it's huge. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, because if you're in traditional finance and you're looking at Vanguard, Fidelity, BlackRock, I mean, BlackRock's a 10 trillion assets under management. So that number is so big, it just like doesn't even make sense. So to put it in context, every single taxpayer in this country, whether you're Apple or you're just an individual, if you took every one of those tax receipts for an entire year and then took it for the next year, that's $10 trillion, just to kind of put it in context of like how much we're talking about. Actually, so, 12.6. Is it 12.6? So it's, it's even more than that. We looked so, this up today. Did you really? Okay. <laughs> so the number's huge. And when you have that entity going on national TV and saying, <laughs> the hope BlackRock is, oh my God. I don't think I've laughed that hard. I assume you watched a sailor. Oh, yeah. Hope. And uh, you had the former commissioner of the SEC on CNBC Today talking about uh, with Joe Kiernan. And he was like, so, like, what's the timeline? When's this going to happen? And, and he was just like, yeah, this is, this is, oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> You're cheating with notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, think, I think that they're posturing and they're, they're pumping out this message, which is, uh, this is happening. We're going to lead the charge and Fidelity and all the others. It was so funny to watch all the others get their paperwork updated. And um, it sure seems like there's something going to be approved and there's going to be a shift. Now, where I, where I really going to find it interesting. So you have politicians in this country that have been staunchly opposed to anything crypto, Bitcoin related. And I think we all know the politicians I'm talking about. Some of those politicians are heavily influenced with their funding through the big banks. So now that we have the big banks messaging that, oh, Bitcoin's good. And, and from banks that were the biggest ESG environmental, Bitcoin's bad for the environment, and now they're coming out and they're leading the charge on Bitcoin is all of a sudden good, three days after Binance was sued through an emergency order, which I think is no coincidence. Um, the fact that you have that, I'm real curious that in the coming quarter, two quarters, are you going to see those same politicians actually start to say, ah, you know, well, Bitcoin's not that bad because their, their entire budget is based off of the banks, the big banks. And I, I could totally see that happen. I know that sounds, I, I think most people in this room would disagree with me, but I could see it happen. Where, where do you think the shift has come from? Do you, do you think it's... Uh, I think it's been in the cards. Well, do you think it's <laughs> like there's enough people who've realized they can't defeat this thing, so... I think there's a little bit of that. And I think for the last year, year and a half, it has been part of the, hey, let's let's uh, throw everything we got at this so that we can we can back up the train and get our ducks aligned and and you know have a position in this I think the whole FTX thing I mean I, I don't want to get too uh, conspiracy theorists but some of the stuff that I read some of the stuff I read on the FTX stuff was mind-blowing mind-blowing the the parallels and agencies and yeah so do you think this is a way to uh, hand over Bitcoin on ramps to the traditional institutions and take them away from the companies I, that built it. 
I think the traditional institutions were looking at the Coinbase's, they were looking at the large exchanges, and they're saying, we're not technically set up to handle the custody requirements from like an intellectual property standpoint and the infrastructure standpoint to be able to handle this and custody this in a way that we're not uh, a liability to ourselves. And so they just want to buy it because they're looking at the market cap of like what all that was worth. And they're just like, oh, we'll just buy this. In fact, let's clobber them. Let's make them all look bad. Let's like collapse their stock price and their equity price. We'll swoop in. We'll start buying up the equity. Heck, we'll have the SEC because of all of our lobbying efforts. We'll have the SEC go over there and sue them. And then we'll buy up more of their equity. And then we'll just control control it. We'll own it. We'll own the custody. We'll file the ETF. We'll eventually own the, the custody side of it. Um, and I think that's all like part of the well coordinated. Well, I mean, I'm, I guess if I was put in that seat as an executive in one of these big banks and I was told, Hey, like you're, this thing's going to eat your lunch in the coming five to 10 years. Like that's the play. You've got to, you've got to somehow go and own that, that IP and part of that market somehow. So, um, their forte, I mean, Sailor's done a really good job, uh, his speech over in Europe. He did a great job just like laying out like this coordination between owning the politicians and owning people that make the rules to be able to slow down a clock, to uh, get your fingers into owning equity. Um, and the people that sit, sit at the top of this capitalistic structure that, that's been <laughs> warped to no end through fiat currency, the biggest players in, in the country are, are the bankers. Like, hands down, it's, I think everybody in this room would agree. They're the ones that politically can just move markets in a way that no other industry can do. Uh, I guess maybe Silicon Valley tech would be in there as well. The show is brought to you by Mutiny Wallet. Mutiny is a new self-custodial Lightning wallet that runs in the browser. There is no download needed, and it is even installable on your phone as a progressive web app. Now, Mutiny allows for instant onboarding with channels that open on the fly. It supports both on-chain and Lightning transactions and has encrypted cloud backups protected by the seed words. It also integrates with Nostra using Wallet Connect to make zaps, tips, and even subscriptions possible directly from the wallet. Now, Mutiny is still early and in beta. So for now, just play around with it with some small amounts, but their aim is to be a great spending wallet. Mutiny is fully open source with MIT open source license. We love them. We love Tony. Go check it out. It's mutinywallet.com which is M-U-T-I-N-Y-W-A-L-L-E-T dot com. Next up, we have Unchained. Now, the events and exchanges and in traditional banks over the last year were all an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But taking ownership of your Bitcoin keys, you know what? It can be daunting. That's why our good friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I have personally been through this process and set up the vaults for my football team, Real Bedford, and you know what? I know this is a personal recommendation here, but the multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They ship the required devices to you and they walk you through it step by step so you can understand exactly how the vaults work. Now, after you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. So if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way for you to get started. Get it done sooner rather than later. You can book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. 
That is unchained.com, U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Next up, it is Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi makes coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in coin join, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi just dropped a badass new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can coin join directly on the hardware wallet which obviously is very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VOP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out, and with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if you need. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Whilst this stuff uh, with ETS really interesting, we, we really should talk about what's happening uh, with the economy, Inflation, recessionary pressures, everything we spoke about. I mean, I think, it, was it here in Nashville when we talked about, we did the Monopoly board? Oh, yeah, here in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the Monopoly board's on. If you haven't listened to that or you haven't heard Preston's um, Monopoly board analogy, is there a TLDR? You can do that very quickly now. Is it too hard? No. Uh, There's two Monopoly boards. Well, how many people have heard it or seen it or a few? Okay. All right, uh, so let me it see. It is brilliant. <laughs> let me think about how we, uh, how did we broach that? Um, There's two Monopoly boards. Well, okay, so it was, it was me trying to explain quantitative easing in a way that was just makes it like really accessible. And it's just, so when you're playing Monopoly, like the, the property around the board is the scarcity, like a commodity and just like regular equities, right? Like it's a scarce thing. You can't have more of it on the board. It's it's only there. The money keeps getting inserted into the game. So if you were the banker and you had four people playing the game, right? That banker has the optionality of inserting it via people going around go. They give them 200 bucks every time. That's UBI. Everybody's getting that as they're playing the game. Uh, you could also accelerate that. You could give everybody 500 or you could give them 1000 or after each turn, you could give them $100 every player. That's your UBI. Uh, quantitative easing is, let's say you're halfway through the game or you're near the end of the game um, and you're starting to have consolidation of equity in the hands of, of maybe one or two of the players. But let's just assume that Pete's winning the game and he's controlling most of the equity. The banker would be like, all right, we need to get more cash into the game because the other three players are getting frustrated they're losing so how can we get that cash into the other players hands well let's just go to pete let's buy all these properties that he's sitting on we'll give him a bunch of cash we'll take the properties we'll hold on to it at the bank and then he'll play the game and that'll just like sprinkle its way into the other players as they're playing the game right that's the mindset 
Obviously, we know that's not what happens when Pete <laughs> starts getting all this cash. What happens with Pete when he gets all the cash is he looks at the other players and he says, okay, that's, that's income producing. That's free cash flow income producing. So, Danny, I want to buy the three properties that you have. I'm already sitting on all this and this boatload of cash that I just got from the bank. I'm going to buy two of your properties. And you're like, all right, well, this is all I have that's generating cash flow. So I bought it for six. I guess I'll sell it to you for eight or a thousand or whatever. And he's bidding the price. And Pete's saying, all right, well, whatever. I got all this cash. So here you go. And then he claws that equity away. He has less equity. So now he's, as he's playing the game, he's, he's more reliant on UBI coming, right? Because he has no income that's coming in. Same with the other player. But Pete's just crushing it. Like he's got even more revenue coming in, more uh, free cash flows coming in because he has more equity on the board. And the banker who clawed the equity, the, the first set of equity away from him, uh, the banker's receiving that as, as cash flows. So like that's, that's QE, instead of it being the, the property on the board, it's the, uh, the bonds on the market. And as they're doing that, the yields are collapsing down to nothing. So no, all your retirement accounts, you're getting nothing in those. Now, we've obviously seen that shift since COVID, but that was leading up to the COVID event, the dynamic that's playing out between universal basic income and quantitative easing. And then just to kind of like add a little bit more to it, I think we did this when we talked too. If you imagine two boards, like you have a set of four people playing here and you have a set of four people playing here and you have two different bankers, if one banker is debasing the currency and putting more currency in there, those players on this board immediately want to go to the other board and start owning the, the property over there. But if the banker is in cahoots with the players and said, as long as you guys don't tell the other board, I'm just going to keep funneling more cash in here and then you guys can dominate the other board, right? But at a certain point, the players over here are looking and they're saying, why is all of our equity, like why are all of our properties flowing over to the other table, right? And so then they're saying, all right, well, they, they lean into the table with their bank and they're like, I think they're cheating over there. I think you need to also be like giving us cash so we can like claw some of this equity back over to our side. And so this is the, this is the, the dynamic that you have playing out on the global stage because nothing's pegged. It's all free-floating fiat currency. And so every central banker is incentivized to debase, but debase in a way that it's not so obvious. Like the U.S. just debased at whatever percent, and now we're going to debase at whatever percent. And then you see the floating currency between, like, let's say we call this currency over here the, the euro and this one over here the yen. Like, that ratio, if you're doing uh, a FX comparison, like it was a one-to-one, -one, then it was a one-to-two, or 1.1 to 1.2, and then back to 1.1, it looks like the currency's not being debased because you're looking at it in terms of the other currency. So both boards are looking at each other like, nothing's getting debased, like nothing's happening here. But meanwhile, if you like actually add up the, num the monetary units in both systems, like they're exploding out. But if you're, if you're looking at them in terms of the other, they look like they're not moving at all. And, and the scenario you just painted there is, is uh, I've talked about this on the podcast a lot, uh, the big short. If, it's like the end of the big short. I don't know if everyone's seen that, but at the very end, they, they, they make the whole thing very entertaining. And then you see a family pack up and they've lost their home and they're uh, moving well, everything to their car. And, and that's the scenario that you've painted. There's this analogy of the Monopoly board is all, you know, all well and good, but it was Danny. Danny was, well, Danny was packing his car up and, and uh, uh, we've widened the wealth gap with this unfair game. 
Well, so when you think about inflation now in that context, so you're going to have this element of stability that's happening as this as these two games are being played, right? Everyone's playing the 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 liquidity's kind of there. People are still playing. They can kind of feel like they're losing, but there's enough liquidity to still support them playing the game. But then at a certain point, you get so much consolidation of enterprise into the hands of one player, especially when you're in the multi-board dynamic where one person over here is literally just dominated and owns all the equity. And they're so far ahead in the game that the other seven participants just cannot catch up with that one player, okay? Now think about if we're talking about supply chains and we're talking about uh, the things that actually drive the inflation metrics that impact all of us, right, on a day-to-day -day basis. If everything's being consolidated into this one entity, and this one entity is so incredibly wealthy that uh, if, if the boat doesn't leave on time, ah, whatever, I lost some money, right? You're not... Uh, and I, I use the example of a forest, right? Like you have all these different species of plants and that's the healthiest forest you have. But if you have just a monocrop in a forest, it's extremely unhealthy and, and very uh, susceptible to change or some type of predatory plant that could come in and literally wipe out the whole thing. And that's what you have in our economy right now is you have this consolidation of enterprise into the hands of a few equity holders and you have this breakdown and what happens is the dysfunction in the supply chain starts to really start to rupture. And um, I think as you go further on the timeline, you're gonna see that continue to unfold because what they're doing with the policies is they're doing more of the same, which is the root cause of of the systemic issue that's causing it, so. It feels like we're spiraling out of control, yet it feels like that from the inside, talking to the likes of you, Lynn, and Luke Wyman. I think it was one trillion has been, uh, increasing the national debt by one trillion in the last month, which was 3.2% increase. Uh, and this is why we looked up the tax receipts today, and that's why we knew it, 6.3 trillion a year, because we were like, well, that's one trillion. And then Luke Wyman said he thinks they'll do 2.4 trillion by the end of the year. And we're like, well, how much have they done at the start of the year? It's like, hold on, they've almost increased the national debt by the size of the tax receipts in one year. And we're like, where, where is this money going? And, Do it's, we and it's getting, it's getting at a yield, because these yields are so much higher. So you think about the interest expense or the net present value of that compared to what you're uh, uh, replacing. And that's the thing that, that's really concerning is because that interest expense is really high. And then when you look at the future side of that at that yield, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's getting wild. And when I look at one of the things that I've, I've been paying close attention to, I'm kind of curious because you live it. I just saw today the true, the, this person does true inflation. I, I don't know their exact basket that they're using, but the number that he published was I think 11.7% in the UK just recently. And the government's saying it's 8%. Interestingly, here in the US, the government's saying it's 4%, and they're saying the true inflation here in the US is 2%. And so you're having this really interesting situation where I think over in Europe uh, and, and in the UK, because you're, because you're not, not energy independent like we are much more so here in the US, um, I think that the whole Ukraine, Russia, energy situation is causing the debt spiral to really manifest itself over in Europe and in the UK. 
And because we're so closely tied, the U.S. is so closely tied through NATO and all these other political forces, I don't know that you could say any of it's under control here because we, we're so interconnected with Europe and the U.K. I mean, inflation at the moment in the UK is, is not coming down. We, we're at, what did you say, 9%? So the, the true inflation was 11.7%. Yeah. yeah, so we've been raising interest rates. We're up to about 6.5% now, and inflation's not coming down at all. We've actually also seen that this week they reported that we've had the fastest rise in, uh, uh, rise in wages, which adds to the fear of uh, increased inflation. Um, I think... <sighs> I know there's different definitions of inflation. I think the energy uh, issue is the biggest part of this. We had our energy bills essentially triple. Uh, so, uh, and, and to the extent that a number of companies just closed down, like if you're a bakery, you just couldn't afford to, yeah. you couldn't afford to operate your business. Those have come down now. I think they've, uh, haven't they not halved from the peak? Um, but, but, but fuel costs to fill up your car, I mean, it, it, it went up to one point, like two pounds a litre. Um, I think when I ran the calculation, that worked out about eleven and a half dollars a gallon, for perspective. I think that's correct. Um, uh, that's now come down to like one fifty, but that's still what I mean. That's still what eight dollars a gallon, and so that you know, that adds to the cost of transporting food and goods around. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, inflation is a is a real issue in the UK. I say that, uh, but at the same time. Uh, it's definitely a class issue at the moment. Uh, it's definitely something that's really affecting the, the working class. And I think perhaps the middle class are just burying their heads in the sand or dipping into savings because uh, uh, nobody I know is changing their lifestyle very much at all. But uh, you know, going to do your shopping at the moment, you notice, I mean, I don't know, when we were kids, you used to do what was called the big shop, where you do your weekly shop with your parents of all your food. People tend to buy on a daily basis now. And you just go and buy like a few things and you find out you're spending 40, 50 pounds, whereas a year ago, that would be say 30 pounds. So inflation is a massive issue in the UK. So all of this, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have this deflationary impulse uh, because of impairment and credit and businesses are going to fail, you're going to have like this, this, uh, this fit that's going to be thrown. The central bankers are going to come back with the same solution that has got us here over decades. And, and what you're doing is you're just aggravating the, the issue, which is the consolidation of enterprise, the breakdown of supply chains, which is going to cause. And so where I think it gets really confusing because people are, th are looking at inflation and they're saying it's you you'll have um oh what's the gentleman's name he you've had him on your show uh, a couple times he does the euro dollar stuff uh, jeff Schneider. Jeff Schneider. yeah so jeff will will come on and he'll say you know like look since 2008 they did all this qe it didn't produce any inflation he's right in inflation in the CPI or, or what the common person is seeing in their day-to-day -day prices. But what he's not talking about is what was incentivized through the, the policies that were in place for a decade. And what, what that is incentivizing is going back to the monopoly board is the consolidation of enterprise and the breakdown of supply chains that eventually manifest something in what I would call an uncontrollable uh, situation where they're not able to get it under control. And the reason why it's, they can't get it under control is because when they step in, when it starts getting bad and it starts breaking out, how are they going to solve it? What are they going to do to solve it? They're going back to the same policies that created it.
And so, uh, and this is where Jeff talks about all of this, all of this manipulation of the currency and plugging it into the market to Peter in the Monopoly game. It has these these uh, technology impulses too. So as he gets loaded and ridiculously wealthy in the Monopoly game, he can now go out on the risk curve and start doing these really aggressive things from a technology investment standpoint. And then he owns that IP, and then he rolls it into all the equity that he owns, right? But with all of that comes systemic risk that's inherently built into it because one person can't juggle all the strings. You have to have this diversity in the economy in order for it to function effectively and efficiently. So... You're getting there. I don't think that they're going to be able to, to get under control. Now, the timeline, I don't know the timeline. I just know that their solution is, is rupturing it and making it worse each time they do it. So they've gone from, well, the U.S. have gone from 9% inflation six, nine months ago to four now. Do you arguably think, two. Arguably two. Yeah. So it's dropping really fast and it's relatively low. Do you think they're going to go into a period of deflation? And, and what would the implications of that be? Yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely possible. Uh, but to what extent that they would let it un, unravel is is the point. Because okay, let's go back to the monopoly example. Let's say the banker isn't supp supplying the UBI or they're not doing the QE. What happens in the game? The players literally start saying, "Okay, well I'm bankrupt. Okay, well we'll let you fail. Well you had obligations that you had to play." paid to the pay player over here. And if you default on yours, now they're bankrupt, right? And so then they go boom. And if let's assume there's more players, it, it, it turns into a domino effect really quickly when you're dealing with a fractional reserve system. Because the fractional reserve system is completely based on this idea that credit is an asset on one person's balance sheet and a liability on the other. And if this person just blew up because they're bankrupt, well, now it just it just cascades. Like people people will say that uh, when the stock market goes down 50%, that it was all based on emotion, and that's just, in my opinion, just like total crap. Like it's based on mathematics, and it's based on fractional reserve banking mathematics. That what I just described earlier. But when we were getting high inflation, oh, so back so back to answering your question, which is so. What it really comes down to is, did the banker provide liquidity immediately on the impulse that something was going bad? Okay? So I'm suspecting that this player right here is about to go bankrupt. Well, let me just do a whole bunch of QE, and, and then it never happens, right? Because they just provided more and more liquidity into the system and more consolidation into his hands. So you wouldn't see the, the deflationary impulse in that scenario. And so what I, I guess what I'm saying is, Trying to predict something that's dependent on three people sitting in a room, whether they're going to add a trillion dollars this month or not, is a fool's errand, in my opinion. But those three people sitting in the room couldn't stop the runaway inflation. So what's to say they could stop deflation that may be out of their control? Because that deflation is completely based, these deflationary impulses are based on their supply of liquidity and monetary units into the system. Right? So like Silicon Valley Bank, if they didn't step in and do that, you would have had massive deflationary pressures that would have just ruptured everywhere. Right? Bill Ackman would, was accurate in that. Right? And I don't like that guy. Like, if, I, if I can disagree with that guy on anything, I will. Um, but his description there was accurate. It, it could have, I don't want to say for sure, but I would say there was a real strong tendency that that would have turned into a big deflationary spiral. But that didn't happen because they stepped in and plugged the hole. 
But as they continue to do these policies, the one thing that is assured is they're going to continue to consolidate. They're going to create this franken economy. And this goes to uh, Gladstein's piece on a much bigger scale than what I'm talking about on a nation state or on an individual country level. At a global level, this is what the World Bank and the IMF have been doing to every like developing economy out there is this exact scenario. It's like they've created this monocrop scenario where the country is only good at one thing. You have a warlord, which is preferred in their scenario because they're going to keep everybody through physical violence or whatever do it on task to produce that monocrop. From the global perspective, everybody loves it because they're getting that monocrop at a cheaper price. But for that individual country, it's a franken economy. There's nothing real there. It's like total plastic, the whole thing. Uh, conscious of time, and I'm sure people have got lots of questions for you and Matt, but um, just to finish off, Preston, before we go to that, uh, we sat down recently with Arthur Hayes, and we were asking him about the uh, various scenarios, various options. You know, de a default is completely off the table, but he came down to the, the bare fact that uh, a debt jubilee would be the best solution for the state of the economy. But what do you think, though? Of course. <laughs> and I don't think it's going to be uh, by choice. I think, uh, you know, I'm a Bitcoiner. I think Bitcoin's going to naturally supply it because uh, most people are all in debt up to their eyeballs or close to it. And, um, you know, you go through a situation where Bitcoin becomes the new unit of account that everybody's using to value everything on the planet. And all of a sudden, all the, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars of, of debt that's out there in, I don't know the pace of, of like what that looks like, but over our lifetime, it melts away and that provides relief to people, especially that are heavily in, indebted. So, yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's what Bitcoin is supplying, whether people like it or not, it's supplying it, that jubilee to the, to the planet. And um, most would not call it that, but that's how I view it optically, of, of like mechanically what's happening. So uh, we're very lucky to have both Matt O'Dell and Preston Pish here available to answer questions. If you have any, I'll have more questions than Danny will if you don't, but I'm sure some of you will have some questions to them. So don't be shy. Put your hands up. And I, I just wanted to say real quick that, um, first of all, it's a pleasure having you all in town and, and joining us here at the park. By the way, Harry had a question. He put his hand up. I thought he was telling me five minutes, but he actually had a question. So wherever Harry is... He's left. Well, Alex, Alex has the, the mic. Let's go to Alex. Check. Yeah, it's on. It's day one, I'm already losing my voice. Not sure what's happening. Um, so we saw earlier today, I think, that Vanguard uh, announced a 10% stake in, in Riot. Um, and you guys have been talking, of course, about... Um, about... Um, Sorry, the, uh, the ETFs and all that. So I'm wondering, especially, I guess this question is for Matt. Um, I'm wondering, we see the, things, the way things are headed where like they, they might not be able to, or they might not even want to destroy Bitcoin, but perhaps trying to, to co-opt it or control it, which was, I guess, the theme of, of Peter's original um, questions early on. Um, I guess my question for you is, like, especially with 1031, you're talking to a lot of founders and whatnot. And it, it might be early for that, but do you see a, foresee a future where they're going to have to be conscious of how they operate from like a, 
a regulatory perspective, more so in the sense that like, sure, America right now is a great place to, to, to do business and to build, um, certainly for, for miners in terms of regulatory clarity, but um, is there a possibility of a sort of like almost Atlas Shrug uh, perspective where like uh, the builders have their own tools and products and whatnot, so like turned against him, against them, against uh, their own will by by the state and get co-opted. I, I mean, I think that's a really good uh, question and perspective uh, that I mostly echo. Um, and I think, fortunately, one of the the great things about Bitcoin's adoption being maybe as slow as it has been, is that um, there's a lot of Bitcoiners, yourself included, that have, that have operated in the space for a decent amount of time and have thought about many, many different possibilities. And I think uh, when you talk to founders, uh, the smart ones realize that there is a very real regulatory threat and that always exists. Um, as long as there is a state that you're operating in. Um, and I think, you know, it depends on, on what type of business that is. Uh, obviously, the, the large publicly traded warehouse miners are particularly vulnerable. Um, I would put in that same group uh, any of the regulated on-ramps uh, or off-ramps, depending on your perspective. Um, they are interacting with the fiat banking system, uh, a very historically corrupt banking system that is uh, controlled by very few uh, and is under the, the watching eye of, of the strongest regulatory body in the world financially. Um, I mean, we saw, it doesn't matter if you're based in the United States, uh, U.S. regulators believe that if you're operating a financial company anywhere in the world, you're under their jurisdiction. Uh, so I think um, the, the prudent founders realize this is a real risk. Um, it's specifically a risk to their companies. I think as individual Bitcoiners, um, it's important for us to realize that, that we need tools that are resilient and robust, even if the companies that we might prefer to rely on uh, are compromised or shut down. Um, that's why the, the free and open source movement within Bitcoin is so critically important to everybody. I think a lot of the prudent founders realize that that freedom movement within Bitcoin that might be directly independent of their company um, is indirectly part of the value prop of their business. Like it, it protects, it protects these businesses and the, their operators by knowing that um, there are these tools that Bitcoiners can choose to use that are completely independent of them. I think if you talk to, uh, for instance, um, some of some of the founders that are operating Bitcoin-only exchanges um, and allowing you to buy Bitcoin with Fiat Rails they would say that the fact that self-custody tools are easier than ever to use and that people are actually practicing it and using self-custody does protect them to a degree on the regulatory side because they don't become centralized points of failure. And I think when you start to see, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of dichotomy there with, with Bitcoin founders and the greater crypto space, where in the greater crypto space, there's been a, a very strong push 
towards trying to centralize as much as possible, to try and eke out as much profits as possible. And we haven't necessarily seen that in the Bitcoin space. There are some cases where we've seen that. And I think part of the reason is because people with that mentality chase the short-term gains of tokens and dumping them on retail and taking that easy VC money. And it, it kind of self-selected. So a little bit of my worry might be further down the line now that investors are, are more interested in investing in Bitcoin infrastructure companies. Who do you choose to put on your cap table? Which kind of founders are lifted up? Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think re Bitcoin is resilient and robust to that kind of state capture of companies. Uh, that's why I have conviction in it. And if I just used uh, the mining as a microcosm, um, you know, we, we, we need to be aware of, of, of public large warehouse miners that are very easy to, to control and pressure, taking up too much of the hash rate. But I, we've seen a, a massive boom um, and just so many people seeking out opportunity on much smaller mining operations located all throughout the world, a lot of them off grid. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, think, I think Bitcoin is resilient to that. But it is a risk. It's a risk to the individual founders. It's a risk to clients that might trust those companies and, and give them custody of assets or rely on them in some kind of trusted, trusted way. And it's obviously a risk to investors that might invest in those companies. Um, but, but that's also you know, one of the reasons why there's potentially substantial reward in inv investing in them is because there is still risk there. Matt, just to add to that, do you also think there's a potential with the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard and uh, Fidelity, these traditional institutions get involved in Bitcoin, uh, that the regulatory landscape will change in a way that we might end up with a kind of regulatory friendly Bitcoin world and then like a shadow Bitcoin world? where it's almost, uh, uh, we have clean Bitcoin, we have dirty Bitcoin, we have approved Bitcoin, we have unapproved Bitcoin. You know, I, I think that's kind of the direction, I think that's kind of the direction we're going into, which is why it's, it's important that people can use Bitcoin as freedom money, which is why the circular economy is important, it's why these sovereign tools are important. Um, as a hedge to that kind of, like, regulatory bifurcation, um, it's it's a potential. I think if it if if that kind of situation does happen, it's a short-term thing. It's a short-term painful thing. Try and control the exits. I mean, look, when the banking system starts to fail, what what happens? It's not substantial improvements to the banking system. It's prevent withdrawals, uh, prevent access to your money, close the banks on holiday. We saw that in in, in Lebanon. I think the bank holiday is still going on right now. Um, you, you, you try and stamp on individual freedom to, to try and correct the ills that, that these, these institutional ills that you've, your system has kind of built up over time. But that, the, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it should be able to blast through that. Uh, it, it might be painful. It might make people's lives more difficult. That's the unfortunate reality. But Bitcoin should be resilient through that. Otherwise, um, Bitcoin never really had a chance in the first place. All right. Hey, uh, 
Preston and Pete, you guys were both a huge part of my orange pilling. I had met C.J. Wilson. You had done an interview with him and Jimmy Song about their work. And I was following biology, Sierra Larson, pretty closely and looking at his back catalog. So kind of two questions. One, did, uh, Preston, did you guys ever see uh, uh, C.J.'s final work? They, they put together this book. I, just, I brought you both a copy yeah, in, case you didn't, in case you didn't have it. Do you have a copy, Pete? No, I don't. I'll give you and you and Danny one. Uh, Thank but, you. But then I'll, I'll, I'll try to lead a, a quick question. I was watching biology because I was afraid America was going to fail and we were going to have to start a new com a new country. So, um, Pete, what do you think of Vivek Ramaswamy? Is he going to have a is he have a chance? Is America going to survive? What do you think of that that candidate? Uh, so, when we interviewed Vivek, that was prior to him, him announcing that he was going to run for president. Danny, that was in Nashville. That was in Nashville, and I'll, I'm going to give Danny the credit here. We did the interview. Uh, it was, what, a couple of hours long? And when he left, Danny turned around to me and said, he's going to run for president. Danny called it, so fair play to Danny on that. Uh, I, I don't take him as a serious candidate. Um, not that I don't take him seriously, um, but I don't think Vivek is somebody who cares about the electorate. And I don't mean this to hugely discredit him. I consider him just a, a, another career politician. It's an extension of what he wants to do. And that's nothing against him. I like him. A lot of people do that, and that's abs absolutely fine. Um, but I think he will say what the electorate wants to hear. Uh, I don't think he's a, a full-on Bitcoiner. I think he sees Bitcoin as a voting block, which is, again, totally fine. Uh, whereas I look at someone like RFK, and again, I don't agree with everything he says, uh, but I do think of him as somebody who actually does care about freedom, cares about people. Historically, you can look at his track record for years. He's been challenging uh, the, the, the status quo um, on, on a range of issues. So I, I don't take Vivek seriously. I don't think he can gain much ground. I, I think there's too many uh, stronger contenders ahead of him. Uh, that doesn't mean he doesn't say things I, I, I uh, don't agree with. Do you have an opinion on his donation pyramid scheme? <laughs> I don't even know about his donation pyramid scheme. Tell he, me about it. He's, uh, Vivek has... Uh, you, you get a ref link now if you solicit donations for him. You get 10% of all donations you solicit. What? Are we meant to be shocked that a politician's full of shit? <laughs> I mean, look, the good thing is uh, every single leading contender, uh, whether it's Democrat or Republican, has put Bitcoin on the agenda, whether it's uh, DeSantis, whether it's RFK, whether it's Vivek, uh, they're all talking about Bitcoin, and that's because the Bitcoin voting block is significant. And also, interestingly, uh, across a range of political uh, views. So I just think it, you cannot ignore Bitcoin now. Uh, I think you look like a weirdo if you're against Bitcoin as somebody who's trying to challenge for the presidency. And I think that's a massive... Plus, what a weird place we found ourselves in uh, compared to where we were just four years ago. I think where we may be in four years. So uh, the... Uh, politicians are meant to represent the electorate and in terms of uh, their opinions on uh, should Bitcoin exist, uh, they're representing the electorate now. So I think that's a positive. We don't have anything like that in the UK. It's depressingly bad how far behind we are. Um, that There's almost no one supporting Bitcoin. So you're not going to show your ref link on the podcast? <laughs> no. I don't have a ref link. Okay, so uh, not to keep bringing up BlackRock since they already occupy enough real estate, they don't need to occupy more brain space, but 
Uh, do you find that, uh, both of you guys, is there any concern of uh, greater price manipulation in the market with these bigger entities getting involved? Yeah, I would think so. I think that they're, they're the pros of that. Um, I say that, and at the same time, I'm thinking about who holds most of the Bitcoin, and it's hardcore zealots that, and I use that term in, in a positive way. <laughs> I would refer to myself as a hardcore zealot. Um, that uh, when you just look at the sheer amount of coins that sit in these people's hands and have been sitting there for the amount of years that they've been sitting there, and you look at what they're doing with their fiat-free cash flows and that they're just buying more, um, they can try to manipulate the price, the, the big Wall Street firms, but that's the one thing that, that they cannot overcome that you do get in traditional financial equity markets, in, in my opinion, is like people will hold on to Tesla stock or they'll hold on to you name it company, but if it goes down 50%, they are gone. Like they're running for the hills and there's a huge amount of turnover in who owns that, that underlying equity. When you look at Bitcoin, it's just drastically different from that. And I suspect that a lot of the, uh, the big legacy uh, entities and the, the head executives at, at a lot of these firms, when they looked at what happened on this last uh, bear market, and they looked at that metric of like, hey, like this thing sold off, but like a majority of the of of the market participants, the people that are holding these coins, they didn't go anywhere. They didn't even blink. In fact, they were buyers. Like I think that's so different than anything they've ever seen. And so you know maybe they maybe they have an appreciation for maybe the limitations of what they're going to be able to manipulate in the spot market. Uh, that, that's kind of what I wanted to get at because I mean uh, in the long run I agree with you but like in the next 10-15 years this paper Bitcoin that is basically what's going to happen like that's more my concern just wanted to clarify well, that question and, and, and it was mine as well but I think with uh, I think with BlackRock saying that they're going to do a spot ETF and that they're going to ha have like physical custody you now have a competition uh, on a global level to provide a product that can compete with that. And I think that's a good thing uh, if, if we're going to talk about, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I'm with Matt. Buy Bitcoin. Like, don't buy these, these, these products are crap compared to owning Bitcoin outright, right? But what we can't control is how people interact with Bitcoin and how they're going to interact with their customer base it, with them being the interface to Bitcoin. We can't control that. So um, I think that uh, the, the fact that you don't have a cash settled derivative uh, futures like thing that the government is saying, nope, this is the only thing that will ever be approved. And in Europe and the US and like in the major economies, I think that would be a much scarier situation than what we're seeing right now. With yeah. respect to manipulation. Yeah, I mean, I'd echo what Preston said. I think attempts will be made. Um, I will say uh, that Bitcoin, uh, the global Bitcoin market is the, the closest thing to a free market that we've ever seen in modern humanity. 
it's going to be very hard to control that on a, on a, on a large scale. And I, I think to what Preston said earlier, that's part of the reason why uh, they went after Binance, why the SEC went after Binance, because you really can't do it if uh, this like non like it, no one even knows what jurisdiction Binance is in. It controls 50% of the market, but it even goes further than that, and that's you know the global P2P Bitcoin market in the circular economy. And what we might see is there might be a situation where what we see in failed states like Argentina right now, where you have two different exchange rates. Um, that might be a short-term situation that we see, you know, if, if heavy manipulation is attempted, where if you go through the banking system, you go through traditional rails, you get one Bitcoin price, and then if you go out into the real world, you get the real Bitcoin price. Um, but yeah, I, Bitcoin uh, is a wonderful beast, uh, and the, the permissionless market that it, that it enables has been, uh, if you study Bitcoin history, has been absolutely fascinating to watch. And there's been many people that thought they can control the Bitcoin price and move it in different directions. Um, some of them have gotten fantastically rich, but most of them have gotten absolutely wrecked. Something that I think people underestimate with what's to come in the future with these different products is when people make a 100% return on an investment and they're accustomed to a 10 or 20% return being really good on an annualized basis, and let's just say it's even more than 100%, let's say it's 200% or 300%, all of a sudden, they wanna learn as much as they possibly can about whatever that thing is. And if they started off in some BlackRock vehicle and this thing did 300%, they're saying, God, I wanna read more about this. I wanna read every book I can consume. And that's gonna take them down this path of trying to fully understand why I don't sell at 150,000 or 500,000 and that it's actually getting de-risked at some of those prices moving forward. Um, so I, because look at everybody in this room. I think somebody said it when we, when we started off, like I think you said it, Danny, where it's like, hey, people come into this from all different vantage points. And it doesn't mean that the, that vantage point that they're coming in is right or wrong, but you become really incentivized to just start doing your homework after you start to see it, it work in your favor. And boy, Bitcoin, you know, on if you can hold it for four years, it's, it's demonstrated one hell of a, a performance for that person that can hold it for, you know, a longer duration. This show is brought to you by our lead sponsor, Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. And their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy. And they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers and are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Danny and I met with the team in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us, so they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We have now been working with Iris Energy for a number of months across the podcast, films and events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Raul Bedford. It's been really great to work with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. So if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Next up today, we have Ledin. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. 
Ledin have a robust risk management strategy and always prioritize safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. Ledin also have a brand new product, Prime Loans, that allows private wealth clients to lend assets on their terms and by locking in for a fixed term, they can earn even more interest. Ledin has a team of seasoned experts ready to work with you through the entire process to ensure your assets generates yield while protecting your principal. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, today we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security more seriously because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. The Ledger suite of hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love their products. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. So kind of back on the point of self-custody versus not self-custody and uh, the BlackRock ETF. I mean, I think we can kind of all agree that, you know, there's things that we should be doing or shouldn't be doing as far as like a mass populace, like none of us exercise as much as we should or drink as much water as we should or whatever. We all know what we should be doing, but rarely on a scale of all 8 billion of us on this planet, realistically, it's not going to occur. We're not going to do what we're supposed to do the majority of the time. So wouldn't you agree it's probably just a timing or technology issue with self-custody, the ease or lack of ease from a general populist understanding versus, I mean, you're making a point as to, uh, you know, everyone just take a weekend, take three hours, figure it out. But I think even us in this room kind of had moments where we go, my seeds, you know, concerned about self-custody. But hopefully in the future, technology will kind of rid us of that. Would you agree or... Well, the thing is, is like, if the, if the friction that's holding you back from self-custody is concern over storing it securely and you might lose it, that is completely reasonable concern. But there should also be concern of trusting custodians with not just your Bitcoin, but your dollars. And I mean, it's, it's, it's practically impossible to self-custody dollars because even if you hold cash, you can get debased at will. Um, but there's, for whatever reason, there's a disconnect between people where they, they're extremely concerned about learning how to do self-custody and the personal responsibility that comes with it. But there's no concern whatsoever with their 401k that they're keeping with Fidelity. And that's the disconnect that I, I hope to get through to people that, yes, like concern is healthy. Um, but at, at some point, you know, no one is going to save you. You have to figure out you have to figure it out yourself and, and save yourself. The tools are easier than ever. And in terms of the BlackRock ETF, you know, being an on-ramp to Bitcoin custody, and I've talked to Preston about this on, on your podcast because it's interesting when you came into Bitcoin versus when I came into Bitcoin because 
my rabbit hole with Bitcoin was because I was down 95% and I was trying to prove I wasn't an idiot. It wasn't the opposite. Um, but it's just timing. It's timing. Mine was just luck. Yeah. Um, we all just got lucky. But uh, I, comparing the BlackRock ETF, just to my driving metaphor, driving requires insane personal responsibility. Um, we drive, you know, one-ton vehicles, 60 miles an hour, and we trust every other person on the road, but we do it because we need to get places. Does riding an Uber get you closer to driving? Because that's probably going to be the reality for a lot of people. Like, I think a lot of people probably will not even, we're trying to get rid of personal responsibility throughout our society. Most people will probably not even own a car and drive a car in 10 years. That's the unfortunate reality. But does riding an Uber actually get you any closer to driving? Or does at some point you have to actually make that decision that I don't want to be reliant on this big corporation to get me places and I'm going to do it myself? I think you can echo what Preston just said a moment ago as well, is that when you first discover or look into Bitcoin, it's a, it's a whole different world. There's a whole number of things you have to learn about, understand that, that you don't even know you have to learn about. So the idea that this is a bearer asset, the idea that a wallet on your phone actually holds that Bitcoin, you're used to something digital being something that's with the bank, and it's this whole new paradigm. Um, and so from that day one to learn about Bitcoin, deciding to, to buy some, to suddenly realize that there's all these issues with self-custody with the bank, that you need to host it on a hardware wallet, perhaps you need to think about multi-sig, that's a lot to get from day one. But like I think Preston says, is the more... You, this asset goes up the more you want to learn about it. Everyone here has decided to come to events this evening about Bitcoin, uh, to hear things they've probably heard a hundred times before, to chat about them again because they care about it, because they've been down that rabbit hole. And so I don't think it matters if anyone custodies Bitcoin on day one. It's that they go on and they start on a journey and they learn what Bitcoin is. Because once you learn what Bitcoin is, then you learn you need to self-custody and then you learn everything else. So I think, like Preston says, once the number goes up and people start making money, they, they're going to go down that rabbit hole. They're going to read the books and listen to the podcast and eventually get there. And they've got a, an, an amazing group of advocates in here who can hold their hands and explain it to them. I mean, some might, but many will also think they're absolutely fucking geniuses and buy more BlackRock ETF because course, it keeps going up. Of, of course, and that will happen. But, you know, with every painful experience, you lose some people and you get some people who become hardened. You know, we, we can't... We can't uh, I agree with that, though. Yeah, we the rugs will continue yeah. until self-custody improves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's it right there. And the, and the easier you make self-custody, the problem, the problem with that is, is the easier you make it, the more likely it is to have some kind of flaw in it. I mean, we had the discussions about Bicky at BitDevs earlier. You know, it's, it's a great device. Maybe if you've got a $500, $1,000 Bitcoin, maybe even 10000 But you wouldn't want to store 10 million of Bitcoin on it. So, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of different journeys people have to go on. And, yeah, I, I, I don't think we can magically change it. We can all just contribute to helping educate people. You can learn through other people's experiences or you can learn through pain. And I think part of it uh, that, that also gets wrapped into those two scenarios is when people don't think they're actually in control, they just kind of put their hands up and they say, ah, whatever, like, I'm just gonna buy this thing and they don't like actually dig in. But when you actually feel like you're on the controls and you're wanting to learn through other people's experiences, the reason everybody in this room knows why self-custody is so important is because you either sought out somebody that you really trusted intellectually to learn from so that you didn't have to go through that painful experience or you went through that painful experience. It's one of the two. 
And so when I look at society at large on a net basis, and I'm saying most people are not in control, they're not able to get ahead, they, uh, they have this victim mindset it's like, well, it's just going to be bad and very negative mindset because they're not able to get ahead. Um, I think that you're going to have a, on a net basis probably a whole lot more people that are going to trust and learn through pain instead of other people's experience and knowledge. And I don't mean to sound like a pessimist on that. I'm just trying to look at it objectively and realistically as to how I kind of observe the reality of it. Another hand-holding exercise. Uh, hands up if you haven't had any painful Bitcoin experiences, either lost or haven't made a mistrade or haven't uh, uh, played with a shitcoin. Hands up if you've not had any Bitcoin painful experiences. None. <laughs> None. <laughs> it's, you can't own Bitcoin yet. I mean, look, most of us learn through pain. Uh, we've learned. We've learned through some shitcoin we bought that thought it would go up when we first discovered it, or some mistake in custody, or you know, yeah, even seeing Bitcoin drop to fifteen thousand, you think I should buy more, but it might go to ten or five, and then it's suddenly back to thirty. We've all been through the pain, and you know, we've all learned just to stack, humbly stack sats. The humble part's important. The humble part. You gotta, you, <laughs> you gotta learn seek, that. You gotta seek the right mentors. Like, so when you look in the space, like you could go out there and be following Bitboy. And like, listen to what he's putting out, and like, and, and it's interesting to me that the type of people that are attracted to that type of guidance are very representative of the person that they're following. And so, um, you know, if you have family members or you have friends or whoever, um, you just have to be really realistic as as whether their personality is going to harmonize with where you know we all believe we're, we're looking at the sound guidance of of like really thoughtful people in the space. Um, and try to direct them to those people to listen to their interviews or, or read the, the things that they're writing and, and see the deep critical thinking. Like, come on, like a lot of people aren't going to go out there and read a 20-page post that goes into deep critical thinking on a particular piece of the Lightning Network or whatever. And um, so that's part of the challenge. If you don't have people that are willing to put in the proof of work, they're they're probably not going to be your self-custody. They're going to be your BlackRock type person. And, and that might be the best, best case scenario because who knows? It's going to be AI, crypto scams in the next round or whatever it's going to be. There's probably going to be something. Hello, gentlemen. <laughs> Hello, Harry. Um, I have uh, a comment and a question to, to react to. Um, There's always one. The, the comment is that, um, just forcing us to talk more about BlackRock, um, <laughs> I, I think that you know, w what you guys have done a little bit of is conflate the message and the messenger. Um, I think everything, you know, all the analysis about what the product's going to do in the market is, is very reasonable. But I think that the signal of having Larry Fink get on all the programs and say the word Bitcoin um, is more than Brian Armstrong could do in the last couple of years. So, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's something to be said that like the CEO of the big asset manager is saying the word and talking about the thing in the place where all the conversations happen. Um, and and I don't, I don't want to lose that in our bearishness on the flaws of the financial instrument that they're offering. Um, you know. Shell sponsored the Bitcoin conference, I think, two years ago, but the CEO of Shell ain't saying Bitcoin. 
Um, and so it's, I think it's important to, to think about the message and the messenger in the context of this. Um, the second is just, you know, do, you, you know, you guys invest in um, in Bitcoin startups, and so could could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what's what's out there getting built that's exciting about, you know, we're talking a lot about self custody as hard as like this default position, but like you're still deploying capital into companies that are interacting natively with Bitcoin, you know. What's the landscape of that? Why is that important? Why is that interesting? And why have you chosen to spend your time on it? So I interviewed this guy. His name was uh, Harry Suddock. And, <laughs> and Harry, I asked Harry, I said, why are these energy companies not getting this? It just seems so obvious to, to me that whatever power plant they're setting up, that like this should be just naturally part of the infrastructure, like right next door. And he said, oh, that's easy. Uh, because it's the volatility on the price and the fact that, you know, they're not getting paid for 60, 90 days later and they don't know what that miner's doing with the thing, this digital magic internet money that they're mining. Are they out there speculating with it and doing all these fancy things and are they going to blow up in the meantime that we service them and sent, you know, electrons down the line 30 days ago or 45 days ago? It scares the living hell out of them. I said, okay, well, that's a good answer. So to answer your question on like technology that uh, just seems really simple, it's just there's a company, Sonata, right? They're, they're immediately settling as the electrons go down the line, they're sending sats right back to the energy company. And think about it, from the miner's perspective, they don't have uh, that volatility risk that they even have to think about. They just got, they just settled, right? So they're happy. The energy company, the energy company loves miners, but they hate miners for the reason that I just mentioned, but they love it because they're, they're shutting down and they're turning on at the exact opposite time of everybody else. So you just took this, this entity that, that they love and but the reason they're risky is because of the volatility and the underlining that they're that they're mining in the the settlement delay and you literally just made that instantaneous so now like if you're an energy company and you're using a service like that you they just literally became your best customer because they're soaking up everything and you're immediately settling with them and and you've been completely de-risked from any type of risk that's associated with servicing that person so that's one, uh, that's one company that I would just name, and I think that's really exciting because um, you can't be, a, per, you can't be a, a real energy executive and not recognize how powerful something like that is. I think there's a really exciting opportunity at the cross-section of Bitcoin and sports. <laughs> well, maybe... <laughs> You guys have been crushing it over there in Bedford. We won a League and Cup double. Yeah. You like somehow made a business model around it, which is pretty impressive, I have to say. Uh, we have meetups now in Bedford, which is a tiny little town in the UK. With I think we've had one about this, actually slightly bigger than the amount of people we have here. So we have a focal point in the UK. Some people are like, stop talking about fucking football on your podcast. I hate football. It's like, forget about it. It's a Bitcoin project. We have politicians looking after the mayor of Bedford. I've now spoken to the mayor of Bedford. There's a solar farm in Bedford. We just found out there's, what, how much was it? 
like we've got a massive solar farm there where they're curtailing 50% of the power. So we're talking to the mayor of Bedford about putting a mining operation there. Um, so yeah, just forget the fact it's football. If you don't like football, we're actually orange pilling a town and we've got politicians looking at it. We've got companies looking at it. I had a, I've had two football teams write to me this week saying they want to put Bitcoin in their treasury, one in Wales. Uh, Bitcoin racing team got in touch. A netball team's been in touch. Uh, a rugby league, it's like it's just it's spreading like wildfire. So everyone's favorite Australian baseball team, Perth Heat. Yeah, Perth Heat. Yeah. How do I know an Australian baseball team? Because they're a big one. It's the cheat code. Um, no, that's impressive. I, I mean, first of all, I would just say I agree with you about BlackRock. Um, I yeah. I, when I say it's a paradigm shift in 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 Bitcoin's adoption cycle, like I do not say that lightly. Um, on the Bitcoin startup side, you know, we've had basically a single proven successful model um, in the Bitcoin industry, which is uh, exchanging dollars for Bitcoin. And you just collect a fee and you collect that fee in dollars. You're very exposed to uh, regulators. Uh, you're very exposed to third parties that you have to trust on, on the banking system side. I mean, we could talk about companies controlling their own infrastructure. It's impossible to control your own infrastructure on, on the dollar side. Um, so, I mean, that side continues to be successful, but that's not as interesting to me. Um, what's really interesting to me is this new crop of, of Bitcoin native companies that are focused on, on uh, achieving Bitcoin revenue and just getting as much Bitcoin sats flow as possible and, getting, and, and getting, keeping that on their balance sheet. Um, and there's a lot of companies doing that in, in very creative ways. A lot of them are freedom-oriented. Uh, you know, they, coll they collect their, their revenue directly in Bitcoin. They hold it in Bitcoin. They're not necessarily exposed as much to, to regulators and, and the traditional financial system. You know, companies like Mutiny Wallet, I think, is incredibly, uh, could be incredibly powerful for people. I think it could help the whole industry, but it also could be very profitable. Um, we could actually see a sovereign, you know, FOSS, completely open source wallet, actually make a, a, a sustainable revenue stream, um, which would be relatively new. Like we've seen um, the coin join companies, um, both Wasabi and Samurai have, have figured out their own revenue model where they charge you coin join transaction fees. But for the most part, if you look at the wallet space, um, it's been really hard for sustainable monetization that didn't involve either integrating a KYC exchange and taking a piece of that, you know, 1% fee or whatever that transaction fee is, um, or adding shitcoin support and having some kind of crazy shitcoin whatever, you know, system in place to try and eke out some money. Um, so I think I think that should be really interesting. I mean, I'm very excited about Cold Card. I think Cold Card's been way ahead of the game uh, for years now, and the trend's kind of meeting them where they already were. Um, Fetty's a very novel, interesting business that is is based on this open source Fediment protocol that I could think could be very powerful. But but just the general concept is, in a fiat standard, you do growth at all costs. Um, you do growth at all costs, we can monetize later, the money is cheap. On a Bitcoin standard, the money is extremely hard. It's hard to borrow money, it's hard to get new capital. Rather than grow at all costs and lose money and try and monetize later, you try and earn as, as much revenue early on and 
almost, in effect, bootstrapped the company. It's, it's going back to the basics of, of how companies were built back in the day um, with these really solid foundations where they're revenue positive very early on and they just grow alongside that. And that's very interesting to me. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here. It's been incredible. Um, my question builds upon Preston's uh, monopoly example. And uh, one thing I've wrestled with is, you know, do you, do you view that the same phenomenon can occur in Bitcoin, where you get consolidation of coins and wealth into too few people, and that causes this effect of, you know, roll forward, you know, five, ten years, and I think we all probably have a conviction a lot of wealth, you know, will be pegged to Bitcoin or move into Bitcoin. And people that are in it now, whether it be institutional or even sailor, you know, and micro strategy or just people like us that are stacking sats that mathematically people will never be able to get to in the future. Uh, what does that look like, you know, in the future? And how do you think people that maybe are late to adopt feel about that and how that'll, you know, kind of. It's kind of like uh, you ever see the 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 meme or the JPEG of like two universes colliding and there's just like this massive amount of entropy that's happening after they collide. That's what's, that's what's taking place right now. Um, so when you look at the people that are holding Bitcoin, your hodlers, uh, people that have, that were first in or Michael Saylor's that are showing up late and coming with billions. So you got that universe, which is really quite small, but, but getting, more mass to it as as it's getting closer to the collision with the legacy system which is massive it's huge as they impact you're going to have both of them kind of about the same size and then it's just going to be this total reorg of who owns all the equity in the world and so uh think of it like this uh, so like a larry fink right so he's a billionaire i don't know what his net worth is but it's over a billion dollars if you would look at his portfolio, a substantial portion of that is equity of all sorts. I would imagine he owns a lot of his iShare products, but like that's just all that equity that he owns to the tune of billions is how his net worth is currently measured. If he has any Bitcoin, let's just assume that he doesn't, right? Then you go over into the Bitcoin world, like a Michael Saylor, for example, and just his whole net worth is wrapped up into Bitcoin itself, either through the MicroStrategy shell, which all the Bitcoins inside of it, or what he's holding personally, right? As those two universes collide and they're just representations of like, most of the population is in the Larry Fink side, but, but only a few people are holding all that equity. And then in the, in the Bitcoin side, very similar. As they get as they collide, what you're going to have is that equity over there, which is priced at, you know, 35 times earnings today in fiat terms. But if you would price it in Bitcoin terms, right, if you would look at the free cash flows of that equity, which is going down in Bitcoin terms, like you could take Apple stock, you could look at the revenue in Bitcoin terms, or you could look at the net income in Bitcoin terms, and it's going like this. It's going straight down. Okay. So if you're going to value that equity in Bitcoin terms, you're going to come up with, I mean, I, I know personally, I wouldn't even think about owning equity unless I could comp compound it in Bitcoin terms at at least 20% would be like the hurdle rate for me, which puts it at a PE of five. And that's assuming the company would be denominating all their free cash flows in Bitcoin. 
in earning revenue in Bitcoin, right? So if I'm not willing to depart with my Bitcoin until it gets priced to that, what happens to that legacy system and all that equity is it has to go from PEs of 35 to PEs of five. So what does that mean if you have a $100 stock? You know, now it's like a $15 stock, right? Before Bitcoiners are willing to buy it. So now Larry Fink is giving up all this equity that he owns and it's getting redistributed to people that own Bitcoin. And then Larry's getting the, the Bitcoin in exchange for, because he's going to have to pay for whatever, right? In Bitcoin terms, in his life, in his daily life. That's how it gets reorged and the entropy actually happens and you don't have that consolidation of all the Bitcoin into the hands of just a few people. But you're definitely going to have winners. I mean, Michael's going to, you know, my opinion, I think he'll be one of the richest people on the planet. Um, maybe one of the richest people that's ever lived. Um, you're going to have some Bitcoiners that control a whole lot of, of buying power in the world. But there's, there's going to be a massive reorg. Massive reorg. I would just add two things. First of all, very doubtful that Larry Fink did not buy Bitcoin before he announced his ETF. Totally agree. Um, and then second of all, I mean, it just comes down to this key concept that it doesn't matter if you own more Bitcoin, you don't have more control over the network, which is a fundamental shift to the traditional system. Because your, your performance in society is going to come down to your fitness as opposed to who you're sitting next to. And that's what makes it in harmony with nature itself. If you're the fastest tiger, you're the best, you know, insect at whatever, right? Like, you're going to dominate. And it should be no different for the human species. And that's the world we're moving to is like, if you are cognitively like a Michael Saylor, and you can do these calculations and you can understand what value is and you can understand competitive moats and you can understand a business that's actually adding value to society, then, and you own that equity, well, you're going to benefit from that. Yo. <clears throat> so, uh, to push back what you just said, Matt, there's some hard forks in the future that we know are coming. There's at least one. Um, there will likely be more. Uh, if you have an entity that has a million Bitcoin sitting inside of it and they get to choose which fork of Bitcoin they're going to call Bitcoin and they're holding a bunch of other people's money, like how do we come to consensus on which Bitcoin is Bitcoin uh, in that highly concentrated, centralized, regulated environment? Um, I think that's a very good question. First of all, David, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I uh, Look, I mean, to call a spade a spade, BlackRock is the granddaddy of ESG. Um, they will probably, they may try and do a proof of stake uh, fork in the future, particularly since if they control a large amount of Bitcoin, uh, moving to proof of stake actually does give them more control over the network. So they might use environment as the excuse. Um, but the really or rising energy costs or whatever excuse they want to use. But the real reason is so that they have more control over the network. That is the real reason most shitcoins have moved to proof of stake, even though they pretend it's for the environment. Um, I think it would, first of all, anyone can fork if they want to fork. Um, so no one can stop them from trying to do a fork. Um, it could be very painful for people that are holding uh, the BlackRock ETF because they will have no choice in a fork situation. 
Um, people that hold self-custody, um, particularly people who also use their own node, um, will essentially have the ability to choose which fork they want to proceed with. When you have a fork, you essentially have the historical Bitcoin ledger, that Bitcoin blockchain is the same up until the fork point, the rules change, and at that point you have two ledgers that go forward and you have equivalent amount of Bitcoin on both ledgers. Um, in the short term, in that type of situation, this would be a fork that is way more sophisticated than our 2017 fork that is led by, you know, Jihan Wu and a, and a bunch of smaller Bitcoin companies. Um, so th they'd be very sophisticated. They'd have a lot of money behind them. In the short term, that fork might actually trade at a significant premium to existing Bitcoin. Um, people are going to have essentially two choices. Um, they're going to have a choice of, of selling that fork Bitcoin uh, for the existing Bitcoin. I guess they have three choices, selling the opposite chain for the, the new chain or just sitting and just waiting and seeing what happens. And I think a lot of people will sit and wait and that's probably the most prudent decision. But there's, I mean, there's a strong argument. So, I mean, when, when Bitcoin Cash happened in 2017, there were a lot of people that bet really big that Bitcoin Cash was going to be successful. And what, what did we see? We saw, um, we saw markets develop around the world uh, to allow people to trade these assets because it was a, a money-making opportunity. It's one of the beautiful parts of Bitcoin incentives is that it doesn't rely on people being benevolent. It relies on them being greedy and selfish and seeking out profit. Um, so there was all these different markets that allowed people to trade it. Some were more rigged than others. I mean, I remember Coinbase's Bcash launch, where it was like on a Tuesday night, they launched Bcash and it went to some ridiculously unfathomable number momentarily for a couple hours. Um, and you could have even crazier shenanigans than that when you have a player like BlackRock come into it. Um, I think Freedom Bitcoin wins. I think, I think proof of work uh, and the fact that Bitcoin is incredibly difficult to change is, is where that underlying value prop is. And I think a lot of allocators will realize that. I think a lot of users will realize that. Um, and I think what happens is actually, even if you have a situation where ESG, proof of stake, Bitcoin or whatever is trading at 5x uh, freedom Bitcoin, uh, that's it. I mean, there was a lot of Bitcoiners that were very happy with their 20% increase uh, in Bitcoin holdings because they sold they sold it to Bcashers. They sold their Bcash to the Bitcoin Cash to Bcashers. I mean, imagine if instead the dividend is you know 5x your Bitcoin holdings that you can get out of a BlackRock or uh, uh, one of these companies, and and people that take that risk might do significantly better. So I mean, there's also a situation where in that situation you don't even have uh, you don't have conflicting mining interests like with Bitcoin Cash. With Bitcoin Cash, the conflicting mining interests meant they were both using SHA-256, they were both using the same kind of ASICs. In this case, one would be proof of stake, one would not. Maybe they both exist for a while. Um, but I, I think long term, like, like the, in, in, in a free market of competing monies, the hardest money will win. It will dominate all the other currencies. And I think Bitcoin is the hardest money. And it's not something you can necessarily manufacture because one of the properties that makes it so hard is the fact that it's incredibly difficult to change. F futures markets will be helpful for... Yeah, but if I was going to try to clarify his concern and his risk a little bit more, it would be... It would be 
Larry Fink has onboarded and Vanguard has onboarded this obscene amount of people through an ETF vehicle uh, as their trusted custodian, right? They're buying up all the equity of all the major miners in the US, whatever market share that, that they could possibly control, right? And then as they try to spin off another, and I think the only way that they could even have a shot, which I don't think, I'm talking about what I think is a long shot here, a way, I don't know how many standard deviation event, right? It would have to be some type of proof of work fork. Because if they get proof of stake, I think they're dead on arrival. Um, it would have to be a proof of work uh, fork. And since they're controlling the equity of all these uh, miners, they're throwing, their, that's what they're mining, is they're mining the new fork. And then you have all these millions and millions of pension fund people that are just drones, right, that are saying, oh yeah, we agree with them because this is what Larry Fink's behind and all the miners are mining that chain and not this other chain, which is the, the, the one that everyone in this room would be for, right? That's his, that's his risk he's describing. Yeah, and I don't know that I have a good answer for it, I, but, I, but I do appreciate the risk. And but, but they're going to be fighting over a very limited liquid supply of Bitcoin. The, the first 19.5 million mined Bitcoin are with Freedom Bitcoiners. And so whatever the liquid supply is on exchange, I don't know what it is now, like a couple of million, we've got a, another million and a half to be mined. Like the majority of Bitcoin is going to still be held. The, the, concern is the, the concern is the cooperation between these entities that are... You know, massive yeah. in size, the cross country. I'm not saying I think it can happen. I'm yeah. just trying to define his risk. It's, I yeah, suspect no, this is what I, you're trying to describe. That's right? exactly what I'm saying. And, and if you had, let's say, a million freedom bitcoins to sell, then you could dramatically impact the price of Bitcoin. And, you know, in the past, we looked at like which chain has the most collective work done, which chain's the longest. Those signals wouldn't work because. If, you know, BlackRock, Bitcoin, proof-of-work chain was 10 times more valuable, it's going to have a lot more work. But we have it. that, too. What do you mean? Like, if you, if you dump the price of... I'm just going to keep calling it Freedom Bitcoin. You dump the price of Freedom Bitcoin... BlackRock sells well, your Freedom Bitcoin on your behalf. Right, and, but then I can buy the Freedom Bitcoin with... My cucked Bitcoin. So I have a bunch of dry powder that BlackRock just made out of thin air for me. And I have an amazing buying opportunity. And then the question is, I mean, who blinks first? Because Jihan blinked, right? Jihan never moved his hash rate over. Well, and, and He could have moved a significant portion of hash rate over. The Bitcoin cash scenario was like an option. Uh, it was a, a choice that they had. But I mean, there's going to be hard forks in the future. Like there's the accidental hard fork we had in the past. There will be hard forks in the future where the user will have to choose. Um, and it won't be as simple as someone's trying to like change the consensus rules. It'll be like the, the, the consensus rules don't work and you have to pick a new, a new chain. So... I don't know. I just feel like concentrating one person holding so many people's other Bitcoin seems like a big negative for like long-term Bitcoin. If we don't have like a mechanism to generate consensus um, outside of collective work done, we have the Collective Power Bitcoin Magazine. <laughs> we study billionaires. Grab a whole recap. So, like, is the question whether, like, Freedom Bitcoin's destiny is Ethereum Classic? Like, are we, are we all just going to fade into oblivion? 
I, I don't know that I have a, an answer for anything relating to this. I think all we can really do is just quantify the, the potential risk that would be associated with it, guard against it, have conversations, make sure that the community understands the risk. Um, I think that David's highlight is an important one. And I think it's one that everybody should take serious because I think one of the, the biggest uh, fears that I have is just the complacency in the space and just saying, oh, well, Bitcoin's the greatest money that's ever been created. Nobody can ever defeat. That is, that is the polar opposite of what we need to be thinking as a, as a culture and as a community. Uh, we, the thing that's made it so great to date has been this relentless pursuit of making sure that that it can't be messed with, right? So, and I think uh, Larry, I, I fear Larry Fink way more than I fear uh, um, Bitcoin Jesus, what the like, hell's his name? Roger. Uh, Roger. Roger. Roger, thank you. I mean, Roger still has a lot of Bitcoin left, you know, because Roger, Roger Are blinked. Sure? Like, I, I, agree, I agree with both you and David that I think everyone should have an adversarial mindset. I, I, I think the concern with the BlackRock ETF should mostly be with potential clients who could get rugged. I don't, I, it, obviously there's a non-zero risk. They try and attack the network and exert some kind of influence. Um, but I think it's being, it's, it's, it's being over amplified. And I think that, um, I mean, I think it's a low risk. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's what they're going to do, but I just, and it would be an expensive misstep for them. Yeah, if they, oh God, yeah. If they fuck it up, if they, if they fuck it up, they're well, going to have a lot less Bitcoin. I mean, how right? much Bitcoin did Jihan Wu lose? And they need something to solve their fixed income situation as well, right? So, like, you get, you get down this path a certain way, and they're going to start looking at this and be like, why are we fighting this thing? This thing's actually solving our behemoth elephant in the room issue that we have here, which is all this fixed income. It's easier to pump Bitcoin than kill it. Yes. Yeah. And we've seen that at a micro scale the whole way up. So, like, why would you think that that would start to, to be different? I guess because you're starting to get the state involved. But And not only uh, would they have way less Bitcoin, I don't know, part of me kind of, like, fantasizes a BlackRock fork. Because I just, first of all, I think I would end up with way more, I would have way more Bitcoin at the end. But the if they fail, not only would they have way less Bitcoin, imagine the real world learning experience for people that BlackRock, they control the world. They can't control Bitcoin. That would be the most ridiculous wake up call to people. Like if they don't kill it, then, uh, then it's fucking insane. Any more questions? And I think we're about done. Uh, okay, if you are a... So thank you to Matt, to Rod, to Harry for hosting us here at Bitcoin Park. Uh, if you're a national local and you're not a member, I uh, encourage you to join. Uh, again, the collectively, uh, we will support this project. It will stay and it will grow, and this is a huge asset to Bitcoin. Uh, I think it's, Nashville's become the most important. I was making jokes earlier, but this is the center of Bitcoin in the world right now. I think we can all admit that. Um, so thank you for having us. Uh, please join Bitcoin Park. Preston. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Love you, man. Uh, Danny, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone here. Uh, thanks to the sponsor, Iris, who've paid for us to go and do these events. Um, yeah, good luck to all of you, and we'll see you all soon. Thanks, guys. Okay, what do you think of that one? 
I do want to give a big shout out to Rod for helping us pull this together last minute. We were coming out to Nashville to make some shows. They did have their lightning event on and Rob was like, come on, do a WBD live. So with about 10 days notice, we managed to have a standing room only event. And also big thanks to Preston and Odell for agreeing to do the show. I love these live recordings. They're really cool. It's a great chance to hang out with Bitcoiners and also for a chance for you to put some questions to them. And do you know what? Matt, Rod and Harry have built an amazing thing over at Bitcoin Park. I keep going on about it. I'm going to shill it forever. Me and Danny have joined as members. You should definitely go check it out. Head over to one of their events. Get into Nashville. Go and have some barbecue. Go and hang out at Bitcoin Park. Anyway, I've got to get back to filming. Mika, we're out here. We're trying to make this follow the money part four. It's going to be a banger. So many amazing things we are seeing here in Argentina. A real eye-opener for me. Cannot wait to get the film done. All right, I'll see you all on Friday. Got any questions, hit me up on my email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 